This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. We're featuring highlights from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today, numbers and words. A leading brain scientist told an audience at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival that words open up worlds. According to several studies on reading, she's right. Ahead, a conversation about creating the next generation of readers. But before we turn to words, we'll start with numbers. Adding up all the damage Americans have suffered from the economic meltdown might break your calculator. From the fall of Wall Street to the credit crunch to the collapse of the housing market, the country is still trying to find stable ground and to figure out what it's going to take to restore our economy. Fixing America's financial system was the subject of a panel discussion at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival. On hand to debate their ideas were Democratic and Republican policy advisors Austin Goolsby and Douglas Holtz-Aiken, as well as journalist David Wessel. Austin Goolsby is chief economist of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board and a member of the Council of Economic Advisors. Joining Austin Goolsby in Aspen was Douglas Holtz-Aiken. He was the director of domestic and economic policy for the John McCain 2008 presidential campaign. Also part of the panel was David Wessel, economics editor of The Wall Street Journal. He writes the Capital column for the journal. It's a weekly look at the economy and forces shaping living standards around the world. CNBC's Maria Bartiromo moderated the discussion. David, I thought we would kick it off with you. A lot of people said uh, back in September, we're not going to get this economy fixed until we get the financial system fixed. And so that's why we're zeroing in on the financial system right now. So can you give us a sense of where we are right now in that recovery? I think that the, the short answer to your question, which is the right one to ask at a time like this, is that the patient is out of critical condition. Uh, we no longer seem to be at significant risk of lapsing into another Great Depression. The fact that we even were at 25 or 30 percent chance of lapsing into a Great Depression is a frightening thing and something that very few economists thought would ever happen again. Uh, But the patient is still in very serious condition. The financial markets are definitely beginning to heal. The kind of uh, measures that you look at are how much do banks charge each other when they lend to each other. One of the most extraordinary things in this crisis was that banks were so suspicious of each other that they were charging huge sums to lend to themselves. So you can imagine what they were charging when they wanted to lend to people like us. The, uh, the stock market has come back. Companies are able to sell shares. The banks have sold something like $90 billion worth of shares in the last few months. So things are beginning to heal. But... Uh, It's kind of unnerves me that people think that, well, the recession's going to end in August and September, so everything's going to be wonderful. I mean, taking out the champagne to celebrate getting 0% GDP and having mainstream forecasters think that we're going to have 10% unemployment for the next 18 months seems to me hardly a cause for celebration. So the financial markets are healing but the economy is still quite sick. So there's really no reason not to expect that we bump along the bottom for a little while. And my, that's my guess, that we bump along the bottom for a little while. Austin, would you agree with that? I try to stay out of the forecasting game because I made, I, I, back in 1995, I advised my friend not to go to this auction company that had five employees. I said, that's so stupid. If you added up all the sum total of the garage sales what, in the was United it eBay? States. Yeah, it was eBay. <laughs> so uh, for, since then, I stay out of the forecasting business. But I have no reason to doubt the private forecasters or the government forecasters, all of which seem to be saying exactly what David said, that you could turn around GDP growth becomes positive by the you know third quarter, fourth quarter of this year. Uh, the job market doesn't look so great, even historically in a so-called V-shaped recession where you come booming out of it after a, a deep recession. Unemployment doesn't come down for another year or so. If this one and a lot of credit crunch-based recessions are a little more extended, um, so the job market is is clearly the weak spot, um, I might be a little more optimistic than David about, I don't know that it'll be literally bumping around on the bottom 0% growth, um, but the after 1982-83 recession where they're coming back, GDP growth rates of 7 8% on an annualized basis, I don't see that for a while. So, Doug, do you agree with what's been said so far? Hey, by, by and large, I mean, I, I don't see in uh, the household sector a whole lot of strength. I mean, the households have seen a whole lot of their net worth uh, destroyed, and 
Uh, we've seen the saving rate rise for very good reasons. So it's unlikely that you're going to get a, a big spending uh, binge out of households. Um, state local sector is incredibly weak. Uh, for the next two years, they're going to struggle along. Uh, the residential housing market may f- may finally hit bottom in the third quarter, is my guess, maybe. Um, commercial real estate is, is, is in bad shape. Um, so that says that if you want to sort of find a, an engine of growth, you've got to look for business investment, exports. The rest of the world economy is not real strong. So in a world where, you know, as you go down the, 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 the list of usual suspects, it's like Casablanca, you sort of go through it. There's nobody who looks real strong. That places a premium on not having a financial sector that's a further burden on the real economy. And, and that's where we are right now. It, it is getting better, but we by no means have uh, free-flowing credit. We still have an enormous array of government intervention to keep things going. The Fed's still got its fingers in everywhere. So I, I, I'm uh, happy that we're not going south uh, as fast as we were before, but I am by no means breaking out the champagne. So, Austin, bouncing off of what we just heard, what needs to be done now? You know, at the, in the weekend that changed Wall Street, September 15th, everybody said it, it was the financial system. We need to get those toxic assets off the books of the banking system. And then it was, well, wait a minute, we really need to see the housing market stabilize. And then it was, well, really, it's all about consumer spending and it's all about consumer confidence. So what do you think it is that the administration can do to further help this healing process? With housing, I think it was overstated, A, the view that you had to put the focus solely on the financial system to fix it before anything could recover. I think that was, that was way oversold, partly by the financial sector itself. Um, that has proved not to be the case. It proved to be the opposite. As the rest of the economy started doing a little better, the toxic assets didn't seem as toxic. The markets, when there was some elimination of uncertainty, they recovered a bit. The banks were able to raise their own capital. I think everybody was pleasantly surprised that they were able to raise as much money as they Huge. could, that when they did the stress test, it laid out, you know, you can argue about should the stress test have been tougher, but it gave clarity uh, under these conditions, here's how much money they would need and the amount of money they would need was smaller than what people had thought. The housing, I also think, is overstated. There is a school of thought that says, until you see house prices return and construction restart, new house construction, we can't recover. To that, uh, my view is, you would have to see that if we were going to return to the same kind of economy we had before this crisis... But we know that that was an economy that was driven by a housing bubble. And I don't think that's coming back anytime soon. You've got a massive stock of vacant homes throughout the country, even bigger in certain areas. So I don't see house... I think it's very difficult for house prices to come back in that environment. I think what Doug said is right, that now what we're turning to, business investment, net exports, personal consumption as the three areas that you want to be watching that would bring back the bring back the economy as it were and it's by no means the rosy scenario but there are some there there's certainly more optimistic things and you cannot overstate how bad the fourth quarter of 08 and the first quarter of this year were epically bad and the depression if you unpack the statement, could it be the next Great Depression? What was the Depression? It was a financial crisis, a very serious financial crisis, plus serious recession, plus then a series of policy mistakes that led the financial system to fall apart. And, the, and it's basically a deep recession that it, it doesn't cure itself. You don't get out of it. Um, and we were really on the precipice of being in that same situation, that we avoided that is a pretty serious achievement, I think. And, you know, now we're on the next stage. I think that I agree with almost everything Austin said. I think it's very hard to imagine the economy getting any kind of feeling healthy if house prices continue to decline. They don't have to go up, and we don't have to have a lot of that. But I think that because falling house prices make people feel less wealthy, they spend less, and I think because they're bad for the toxic assets. But I think the most important thing that Austin said was at the end of his... his, discussion about this is one of those moments where we can say as a cynical reporter you know 
the government sort of fumbled, but they saved us from something worse. I mean, in Fed we trust. If the Federal Reserve had not done what it did in, in, in September and October and the months before and after, we would be looking, I think, at another Great Depression. And it's easy for us reporters to say, well, Ben Bernanke should have done this or he shouldn't have done that, or if they'd only cut the interest rates a little faster or they, there's this great argument about if they should have rescued Bear Stearns, if they hadn't rescued Bear Stearns, maybe they wouldn't have had to rescue Lehman Brothers or blah, blah, blah. But um, I think that it, it really is amazing to look back and see how this incredibly jury-rigged system where we had a weak president, a strong treasury secretary, very little legal authority, not much practice at fighting the Great Depression-style fires, how it came together and, and saved us from tumbling over to the abyss, which we now know we were uncomfortably close to doing. So looking forward, I mean, Doug said, you know, one of the key things is getting business investments. And, and Austin, you agreed with that as, as one of the critical things in terms of driving this economy forward. How do you do that, Doug? Well, I think you, you have to, uh, number one, this is where you pay attention to credit markets and, and really do what you can to make sure that we further heal the, the financial system. Because in the end, you're going to need access to credit to get any kind of substantial business investment boom. You know, I, I guess I'm still nervous about the banking system. And um, it, it seems to me that people have declared victory slightly too soon. What we learned from the stress test was not very much, I think, about overall health. We just found out there were some healthier and some less healthy and, and that was the major information. That was a key moment in this recovery when markets could start to say, okay, healthier, less healthy, and array those, those big financial institutions. We now know that there are some who can raise private capital. So great. They're probably the good banks. The rest, I don't think you should have a lot of confidence in yet. And we don't know how large the losses will be in, concentrated in that area. So I, I think you could still have some, some shoes drop in the financial sector. You can't rule that out yet. Let me stay on, on business investment here for a minute, Austin, because if business investment is one of the critical areas that we need to see happening, is the administration anti-business? Uh, look, I knew this was going to come. Uh, look, the administration is not anti-business. I, I think that's totally misleading. And the, uh, the view of Sean Hannity or of others that, you know, whatever happened, if the, if the tax rates on people that make more than a quarter million dollars a year go back to what they were in 1999 under Bill Clinton. It's socialism and they're trying to ruin the world. I think that's just totally nuts. Um, but can you do, can this, the administration do something to get that business investment going? I, I think it should. I think there are definitely uh, the stimulus and recovery package I think is important. One of the primary drivers of business investment is whether they think there's going to be customer demand for their products. So if you're an auto company, you don't build a factory unless you think there are going to be people there to buy cars. And so the, I think this thing is a bit of a unit. You've got to do a bunch of things at once. You can't just pick one of the things to do. It's all wrapped up together. Yeah, it's all wrapped up together. Um, so, so I think that's critical. Though I think the... The failure of regulatory oversight of the financial markets means we have to do financial regulation right. And there are some people who are going to say, if you're putting in more regulatory oversight, you're anti-business. Now, I think it's actually, if you go back and read the speeches that then-candidate Obama gave back in the fall of 07, or the spring of 08, he gave a lengthy uh, speech and outline of how he thought there ought to be more financial regulatory oversight. And he made the point as far back then, he said, look, it doesn't make you anti-capital markets or anti-business to be for robust oversight because if the public loses trust in our capital markets, they're toast. Without public trust, capital markets cannot function. And that proved to be completely correct. That was pre-Bear Stearns when he said that, pre-Lehman, pre-all of those things, and they just verified that uh, quite dramatically. So I don't believe that that makes you anti-business, but I believe you can understand how there's some group of people who say, if you're for regulation, you know, then you're anti-business. But I kind of think we need it at that right. point. Well, obviously, the self-regulatory way did yes, not work. did not work. So I think there, I don't have a complete answer to the business investment uh, conundrum. It's, it's hard. But there, there are two risks that, that, that are now showing up, and they are 
upside risks to interest rates, which would be damaging to, to uh, business investment and recovery. And, and the one upside risk comes from uh, the budget outlook, which is objectively uh, just awful. And uh, that's, that's not this year or even next year. It's the trajectory on which the United States has been for a long time and which has been badly exacerbated by recent policy moves. And so uh, we're starting to see in, in markets, if you decompose sort of why interest rates are going up at the long end, some, some piece of it which looks to be just pure effects of, of large borrowing. And uh, I, I don't think this is a, an immediate concern, but at some point capital markets are going to ask, when is the U.S. going to get its act together? And in the absence of demonstrable efforts to do that, I think we run a, a risk there. And the second is, and is, is really more, you know, if, if you're a geek, is really sort of interesting, um, which is the, the inflation risk that some market participants see, but which all the people who actually have something to do with it, notably the Fed, do not. And, um, and so there's this, this big war right now between the markets who say, God, look at all the money the Fed has printed, and they'll never be able to unwind all this, and this is going to be so difficult. And the Fed, which looks very closely at models, and in particular the gap between what the economy is capable of producing and what it's actually producing, so enormous slack, and they just say, look, you're, you're wrong, and you will learn that the Fed is right, and inflation is nothing to be concerned about. But if, if the Fed loses that, that horse race, you get inflation expectations, you get a spike in interest rates. So those, are, those are two things that I think are worth watching at the moment. I think there's one other thing, which is if businessmen believe that it's the policy of the U.S. government that they shouldn't be able to make money, it's going to be hard to get them to invest. And there are some people who think... <laughs> It wasn't meant to be oh, an applause yeah. line. <laughs> but, and I think there is some confusion about what the policy of the U.S. government, both the administration and the Democratic Congress, is on that question. And it became most clear over the exec comp stuff, which is a mishmash. You know, now we have this situation where the administration was backed into a position by Congress that, you know, you can't, your bonus can't be so much more, so then the, they're going to pay more in salaries. And you, you've seen the whole thing play out. And I think that gives people pause about investing. And it's important for the administration to be clearer that it can speak for the Democrats in Congress as well, which is almost impossible, on that big question. Yes. That, look, that, that applies to a tiny... Fr- the exec comp rules are of guys who got their bacon saved by the U.S. government. And while you're taking billions of dollars from the U.S. government, we can argue about whether the rules should have been more sensible or should have been done a different way. But this is not... A guy who's starting a company in Silicon Valley is not taking TARP money. This doesn't apply to them in the slightest way. But don't you agree that there's been some perception that it's not cool to to make money? Well, look, the compensation czar came on my show, and I said to him, look, are you going to be just dealing with TARP companies, or are you looking at all companies? He said, I'm going to put recommendations on the table for all companies when it comes to compensation. Just recommendations, but that does set the tone. Yes, but did you see what his recommendation... I mean, when, when they talk about the recommendations, there are things like pay should be tied to performance. Those are the kinds of recommendations that they're suggesting. Which is, which Everybody is the right has. recommendation. So, that's, 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 that's kind of, that's kind of a bad commentary that that's considered revolutionary. I agree. I agree. And that's my point. To say that is not anti-business. I really... I can't... This is the, this is the inverted world that we're in, that we've gotten into an environment where... People were getting paid for the total opposite of performance. If I could spell it backward, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> and that's not pro-business, okay? Yeah. I, and so I, I really think that the, the president is, has been from day one and even before he took office totally focused on how do you get to the economy growing again and how do you turn this around and avoid this terrible outcome. That is pro-business. You need to have regulatory oversight again for the financial system, for public trust to return. That's pro-business. It doesn't make you... that. It's a totally antiquated idea that any time you say there ought to be regulation, that's anti-business. We've just gone right. through the thing to prove that's not true. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, when, when you're talking about compensation, I, I agree. I mean, this whole issue has unnerved so many people, and it's sort of the issue that that gets everybody just so nervous and excited, the populace. So that's really why this has become such a critical hot-button issue. But there are other things, like taxes. 
I speak with a lot of CEOs, people who are managing businesses around the world and, and, and based in the United States, and they say the idea that you want to tax profits, uh, international profits, the profits that are coming from international economies, is totally backwards. Look, on taxes, I'll say two things. The economy did perfectly well in the 1990s under Bill Clinton when the rates were modestly higher than they are today. Very well. If you think that cutting taxes at the highest end of the distribution and for the biggest corporations is the magic elixir for growth, then somebody explain what the hell just happened in the last eight years because we did it more than ever before, and here we are. So, I mean, rather than waiting for Jack and his magic beanstalk beans to grow us out of the thing, I really don't believe that the, if the top marginal tax rate went up by four points, that that would be socialism or would bring uh, to a halt the growth of the economy, particularly because we got into a situation in which ordinary Americans' income became divorced from the growth of the overall economy. So on all record in U.S. history that, that we have records, the growth of inequality, for example, in the 1980s, the bottom went down, the top went way up, but the broad middle class was tied directly to how the economy did. If we're in a boom, they're doing well. If we're in a recession, they're not doing well. That, that relationship was ultimately broken over the last eight to 10 years. So we go through the first boom in American history where the median family income falls by $2,000. In this world, things like, it, it, the way I, I say it is, if you ask what are the five most pressing economic challenges, not in the, even the, in the immediate term, over the next 10 years, the five most pressing challenges facing the economy is in your top five that tax rates are too high on very high income people. I think in all those top five, there are things like the health system is deeply broken. The energy policy of the United States has been terribly damaged and steering us in a bad direction. The lack of investment in innovation, a whole series of things that we need to make investments on. And so I, I really don't, uh, I guess I just don't agree that we were in the right mix running up to this. On the subject of international business taxation, Obama did not create, it has always been the policy of the U.S. government that if you're a U.S. corporation, your profits in other countries, you're taxed on a worldwide basis and you pay taxes on the profits earned abroad. There is a rule that allows you as a company to defer paying those taxes until you bring the money back to the United States. There are a lot of economists who believe that has given, that has encouraged companies to ship jobs overseas. There are other economists who say, no, this is important, we need to retain it. All Obama proposed is not abolishing deferral. It was, if you want to deduct expenses on your operations, you have to bring, you have to report the profits before you can deduct the expenses. Uh, now, we can argue about the technicalities of that, but the argument that this is, in some sense, changing capitalism or making the U.S. decide that it's going to go tax foreign countries is fundamentally not true. The U.S. has always had worldwide taxation of U.S. corporations. So it, that, that is not a new change that Obama put in place. But I think that's, that's part of the issue in terms of perception because... Um, the details are, in fact, what the business community cares about. And while the U.S. has always had a worldwide tax regime, uh, the deferral minimized its impact in a competitive environment where up until this year there were only three countries that chose to have a worldwide tax regime, and now there is one, which is the United States. So we are demonstrably out of step with our international competition, and we need to, in order to preserve headquarters and the jobs that they bring in the United States, have a tax policy that is actually in step with the economic realities, this goes the wrong direction. And so they're concerned for real reasons. Look, uh, we can be concerned. The issue of the corporate tax rate, I am of the view that we should try to lower the corporate tax rate. Our statutory rate is 
second highest and soon to be highest in the developed world. But our actual taxes paid, if you look at the amount of taxes paid by the corporate sector, are the fourth lowest in the developed yeah, world. Why is that? I don't and understand the reason is we have more deductions, exemptions, we have more debt, and interest is deductible. And so we have the highest variability in tax rates across companies within the same industry of any country in the world. So the, if you are a company with low debt, profitable with international operations, like high-tech companies, our tax system is designed to, you're going to take a few body blows because you're paying full freight 35% corporate rate. If you are a company that isn't very profitable, that has lots of debt so you get exemptions, and has lots of investments so you get accelerated depreciation, you're actually facing, on the margin, a negative corporate income tax rate of 2%. So the president has identified, and we should be, uh, we should be competitive internationally, but the proper view of what the competition is has got to take into account the full exemptions, deductions, rates, et cetera. It's not just picking what the statutory rate is because a lot of companies are not paying that rate. Austin Goolsby is chief economist of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. We also heard from Douglas Holtz-Aiken, director of domestic and economic policy for the John McCain 2008 presidential campaign, and David Wessel, economics editor of The Wall Street Journal. They debated how to mend America's financial system at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival. CNBC's Maria Bartiromo moderated the discussion. This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdal. We're featuring highlights from the 2009 Aspen Ideas Festival, and one of those highlights included a discussion moderated by Dana Joya. Joya is a poet, an educator, and former head of the National Endowment for the Arts. He's currently director of the Harmon Eisner Program in the Arts at the Aspen Institute, and here he is kicking off a discussion titled, Why Learning to Read is More Complicated Than You Think. For seven years, uh, I was the chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. And during that time, to my surprise, uh, I made reading one of the major issues that we did, which was essentially a voluntary adult reading. The reason was is that when we looked at the considerable data that we had and when we gathered all the data that the federal government had, we saw among American adults a bifurcation. There are essentially two, in, in gross statistical terms, Uh, groups of American adults. One works, shops, and comes home and watches entertainment. Uh, They have almost no involvement in civic life, in cultural life. Uh, And there's another group that does everything that the first group does, but it reads as well. And we discovered that that group does three to four times, which is 300 to 400% more volunteer and charity work, they vote at overwhelmingly higher levels. The readers exercise at twice the level of the, of the non-readers. The readers play sports at twice the levels of the non-readers, attend sporting events, cultural events, et cetera, et cetera. When we pulled together all of the f- data that the federal government had on reading, which was 47 reports, any of you who have used 47 different statistical bases will discover that they never agree. Unfortunately, in this case, all of the data agreed, which said that the ability and the willingness to read, uh, to read well was an overwhelming determining factor in the educational success of people, their economic success, their cultural involvement, their civical involvement, and insofar as we could measure it, often their physical health. These people 
indulged in healthier rather than less healthy behavior. Because of this, the topic we're talking about today with these three distinguished panelists is of enormous importance, which is how do we create the next generation of Americans who can and will read. Uh, we have immediately uh, next to me Margaret Spellings, who uh, I first met when she was the domestic policy advisor at the White House. Uh, she was soon brought in to be U.S. Secretary of Education, where she oversaw and managed No Child Left Behind, uh, which is a program which has had uh, measurable success in, in improving the reading scores of primary school kids, although it has also been uh, a program which has been co very controversial uh, in some quarters for, uh, for other reasons. Uh, next to her is uh, Patricia Kuhl, who's a professor of speech and hearing sciences at the University of Washington. She is the Bezos Family Foundation Endowed Chair in Early Childhood Learning and the co-director for, uh, for the Institute and for Learning and, and Brain Science. And then finally, uh, in the far uh, corner there, uh, is Claiborne uh, Barksdale, who is the CEO of Barksdale Reading Institute in Oxford, Mississippi, which seeks to improve the reading uh, skills of children in the early grades. He is a lawyer who has also uh, had experience as a teacher, and he's the president of, of the board of the, the Children's Museum of Mississippi. Uh, what I've asked is each of our uh, participants to be able to make a short statement outlining some of the issues they'd like to talk about. Uh, Margaret Spellings. Okay, Dana, thank you. Um, I know you're not ever supposed to answer the question that's been asked if you're involved in public policy and politics, but I'm going to do that. Um, <laughs> it says, the, the title of this session is called Why Learning to Read is Harder Than You Think. And it's because it's one of the most complicated things that the human brain ever has to do, and I'm certainly not going to try to uh, out science, uh, Pat Cool, who's one of the leading uh, researchers and thinkers about the brain in our country. But it involves lots and lots of different sorts of things, including background knowledge and vocabulary, language structure rules, verbal reading, decoding, spelling. It is a complicated task. And our young children in our schools at the first and second grade level need to be uh, learning about 800 or more words a year, that's two a day, and in grades three through eighth or so, they need to be learning two to 3,000 new words a year. That's six to eight words a day. And when you think about that in your own context, how many words did you learn yesterday? <laughs> And so it is a lot for kids to, to master and get a grip on and do. Now, Dana mentioned No Child Left Behind, and uh, I am a big what-gets-measured-gets-done person. This law said we're going to test every kid in reading and math. We're going to find out how they're doing. We're going to disaggregate that data by race, special education, poverty, and so forth, and we're going to report that. That has proved to be an uncomfortable process for many uh, that's the bad news. The good news is we're finally out of denial and we know much better where we are. The bad news is about half of our African-American and uh, Hispanic kids read on grade level. Eighty million uh, adults in this country are functionally illiterate. I mean, we have problems. So what are we going to do about it? You And you all know, uh, and because we're in such a quick time pace here, uh, why this is bad for America and why this is bad for individuals. So from a public policy point of view, in my mind, you can't really separate an emphasis on reading and research-based practices from data, from information, until we find out where kids are and, and where they're not and be very precise about what kind of educational cure or intervention they need. It's much, much harder to, to solve uh, for these issues. One other quick point I want to mention because we'll get into resources, I'm sure. When President Bush uh, showed up for the job on the first day, the federal government spent about $300 million on reading. Part of No Child Left Behind, uh, not well, it's well known in education circles, was a program called Reading First that was a $1 billion, more than tripling, of reading investment uh, in, a, in our schools. The Congress has recently zeroed that out for a variety of reasons. While they have nearly doubled funding uh, for Title I and special education and lots of other things. So there's lots of money in, in the uh, pipeline at the moment, 
but one of the things that I think it, that suggests from a policy point of view is it makes paying attention to these issues at the state and local level very, very important. No longer will we have the opportunity from a federal policy level to say, this is what research-based practice looks like, and this is, this is how you do it. This is how you get results. So this game is becoming more of a ground game at the state and local level. Um, so with that, I'll conclude. Pat. Uh, I'm a brain scientist, and I'm interested in learning uh, over the lifespan, but particularly in the first five years. And my specialty is language development. And what I want to tell you today is that reading starts in the crib with the child's interest in the sounds and the words and the kinds of language that we're using to talk to the babies. And we are going to make, we're going to make four points today that I think are good take-home messages. And the first one is that the baby's brain and its response to sound makes a difference. The second one is that the environment makes a huge difference. How we read and talk to children from the beginning of life uh, to the time when they're entering school and wanting to read makes a difference. The third point is it matters what language you're trying to read in. And the fourth is that time is of the essence, because if a child enters school at the age of five not ready to learn from instruction about how to read, all of the instruction that all the teachers' expertise that we've listened to says you cannot catch them up. So if they're behind at five, they'll stay behind. And by the third grade, uh, if a child can't read, teachers just don't know what to do. So let me start and briefly code these messages. And the first one is that uh, it starts in the crib and the baby's brain matters. We've been taking brain measures uh, of babies where they wear a little nylon cap and there's sensors in the cap. And we pay attention to what the brain does when we change the sounds. So if you change a word from pat to bat, there's a difference between the P and the B that begin those two sounds. If the brain reacts to that change, and in most infants it does, that uh, reaction of the brain to that sound change predicts the speed of language acquisition out to the age of three. And it makes a huge difference. The babies whose brains are responding quickly and, and uh, with a big amplitude shift are the ones who are reading uh, early. We've, tra we've traced them to the age of three to look at language, vocabulary, and syntax. We've now followed those kids to the age of five. Their brains early predict their phonological awareness at the age of five before they enter school. So the great chain of reasoning is that the baby's ability to react to the sounds makes a difference. So the baby's brain makes a difference. We make a difference because we can encourage brains to respond to sounds when we talk to babies. Talk to babies and read to babies. There's a phenomenon called mother ease, and I will demonstrate it very, very quickly. Mother ease is the way, the, the tone of voice and the, the uh, kind of language that we use when we speak to kids, babies and kids. And if you brought a mother into the laboratory, which we do all the time, and she's talking to me, she sounds just like this. Uh, I had a bit and the traffic was awful and I'm sorry I'm late. It's not dull, but it's not wildly, you know, interesting uh, in terms of the tone of voice. But if she's holding a two-monther and she turns to her two-monther, she's going to sound a whole lot different. She says, hello, how are you? Can you open those big blue eyes? You know, so the tone of voice is seductive. And, they, and the sounds of the words are pulled out and stretched and exaggerated. It turns out that mothers and fathers and grandparents and older sibs in all countries, no matter what language they speak, use this motherese, fatherese, caretakerese, whatever you want to call it, when they speak to the young kids. And the kids given a choice love it, and it's wonderful for their brains as they're developing notions of what things to attend to with regard to words. So the kids who are very... Um, uh, the kids who are in families where they're talked to a lot and they're read to and using motheries are much, much better at the discrimination of the sounds. Their brains react to it in a much more avid way. So the environment matters. Reading to kids and talking to kids matters. The third point is it matters what language you're, you're trying to read in. So if you have the same brain skills and you happen to be growing up in Finland learning Finnish reading as opposed to America and learning to read in English, it makes a huge difference. Finnish is a lot easier because the correspondence between the letters and the sounds is very, very transparent and simple. English is just the opposite. So the difficulty in reading and the, the, um, the frequency of dyslexia for a child with the same brain skills 
is much lower in Finland than it is in the United States. That's just a fact. And you can stack up the uh, order of reading difficulties and dyslexia by looking at the complexity of the correspondence between sound and orthography. So that's point three. Point four is it does matter. There's a critical period in the development of language and reading. Uh, there are critical periods um, having to do with when the brain is ready to learn things of a certain kind. Language and reading, is a cl they are classic examples of the critical period. So it does matter that our five-year-olds come into school ready to read. And when the teachers are telling us that they don't know what to do to catch them up and they really can't, they mean it. It isn't because they have poor teaching skills. It really is difficult to catch them up. So that's my message. Uh, Claiborne? The coincidence of poverty and the difficulties of children's reading are are absolute. And this is not a discussion about poverty, but it is a recognition that children who come from impoverished backgrounds are not spoken to as they need to be, as richly and frequently. Uh, wonderful seminal work called Meaningful Differences by Hart and Risley projected that a child in a family of poverty, by the time he or she gets to kindergarten, will have heard 30 to 40 million fewer utterances than a child reared in a professional home. So you have the quantity. The quality is also much worse. The incidence of affirmation in the professional family is much greater. The, the uh, encouragement, the questions, as opposed to the negative directives, which form the preponderance of language if you're reared in poverty, i.e., sit down, shut up, don't do that. So the child is reared in uh, a, a dearth of language, a dearth of affirmation, and begins kindergarten at the age of five significantly behind in vocabulary, knowledge of the world, phonological awareness, in every telling predictor of their subsequent success. I think clearly what we as a nation need to do, I would say two things. Uh, I'll go ahead and jump on out there. We've got to have quality early childhood education in this country. I'm not talking a la Socrates that it be mandatory. I'm saying that it be available and that from the moment a child is in an out-of-home setting, he or she is being bombarded with that cognitive stimulation that they need so that the brain flourishes. Secondly, we have got to pay our teachers and our principals not just more, a lot more. We need to attract the best and the brightest into education because our future depends on it. Uh, you know, Pat, uh, I'd like to ask you a question about uh, acquisition of reading. Mm -hmm. Speech is, uh, for a child raised in any sort of normal uh, social situation, a human universal. I mean, they may not be... Uh, great orators, but that they learn some proficiency in speech, whereas reading is a progressive, learned activity that really isn't necessarily natural to the human brain. It's sort of like learning to play the violin or the piano. It's a cumulative skill in which continuous practice and instruction is crucial. Uh, it's also been, I think, demonstrated that actually when people read, parts of their brain light up, which don't light up otherwise. Uh, what cognitively is involved when a child moves from oral culture into written culture? And, and how does neuroscience help us understand that to, to be able to instruct them better? Well, I think one of the things we have to be aware of is the title of this session, the complexity of it. Uh, as you say, Dana, it's not an automatic. You know, speech and language, there are some implicit steps that are taken simply by being in the environment and listening to language. Reading and writing, that's an invention. And it does take the steps to bring a child from oral language to written language. And that's a complex step. This association between the sounds and the letters, and again, the complexity of the language, you know, it matters whether you're learning Finnish or, or English. So it's not easy. 
It takes multiple steps to get a child there. And I think that's why I like stressing the idea that babies should get used to the idea very early in development that those black lines on a white sheet of paper that we all look at, that opens up worlds to them. Words open up worlds. Whether you're poor or rich, being able to read will let your imagination soar. So whether a six-monther chews on a book or looks at the pictures doesn't really matter. They get used to the idea that you sit on mom or dad's lap, you're looking at these black lines on a white piece of paper, and you see pictures and mom and dad are talking to you and pointing at things. And the brain science is going to help us because it's going to show these stepping stones from the early abilities to this uh, leap towards the, uh, you know, being able to talk and seeing that words reflect talking on a sheet of paper. And so I think that we can see the areas of the brain that light up. We're aware that uh, certain areas of the brain are critical to language and reading. We can see the effect of language input on those areas of the brain at the age of five before children enter school. We can see that kids who have not been talked to as much uh, or, or the language that they're listening to is not complex, their physical brains are different. So once we start treating the brain like a muscle, you've got to work it for it to work for you, uh, the brain is very similar. These kids are building tissue tracks. They're building connective you know, areas. So we've got to work on it. We have to understand that and uh, do something about it. Uh, uh, Margaret, I want to ask you a question that comes out. Uh, like you, I love data. And because data gives you some sense of, of you know, of objectivity from your own opinions. And one of the interesting things, when you look at reading proficiency in the United States right now, it seems as if over the last decade we've done a better job with, with seven-year-olds, with nine-year-olds, with 11-year-olds. Uh, by the time we get to 13, we're just barely holding on to flat scores. By the time we get into the teenage years, we see this terrible drop-off. And there is a statistic which I find uh, frightening, but it is very reliable that we are now in a nation where only 31% of college graduates read at proficiency. And so, you know, we seem to be losing, winning the first half of the battle, even though, uh, as our panelists have talked about, there's enormous challenges in this, but it seems as if the, the electronic entertainment culture we're in, uh, you know, beyond that, is making it almost impossible to win the, the war. Do you have any, have any perspective I, on this? I surely do. And again, why I said that, that accountability and education policy generally can't be separated from this issue and this problem. No Child Left Behind says we're going to measure kids in grades three through eight in reading and math, and we're going to attend like heck to those grades. There is virtually no accountability after eighth grade. And as it turns out, as Dana rightly suggests, we've seen some powerful uptick, not as much as we have in math. Reading's much harder to do, and, you know, see Pat Cool's explanation. Um, but, but we are seeing some positive trends. When we stop paying attention, we, we know two things. Those who can't read very well are no longer with us in the schools. And two, you know, there's no accountability, there's no power, it doesn't matter. It's, it's you know, it's, it's not our policy priority. Um, I, while I have the floor, I, I do want to say a couple things about the early childhood piece and how we have to think about this in a continuum. So while it is right and righteous to do more, better, uh, sophisticated, good things than we're doing now in early childhood, we also have to recognize that reading is not something that either does or does not happen by the end of the third grade, and we say victory or, you know, failure. It is something that has to be worked on throughout schooling and if we're going to change this sort of trend like this where we're seeing good gains at seven, flattened out by fifth grade, eighth grade, and virtually non-existent by high school. Uh, Carborn, you're, you're actually really in the trenches of the reading war. You're in the, in the region which has the lowest uh, reading scores. Uh, you're in a state which has extraordinarily high poverty levels. And you're in a situation where you know that essentially with, when kids can't read, they drop out of school. If they drop out of high school, not only will they make less money, have less freedom in their life, they will live six to seven years less than kids who stay in high school. What have you found that works? I'll tell you one thing we've learned, and this gets back to, to the um, generic topic that we're talking about. This is very difficult. It is complex, multi-layered a lot of social factors involved, and if you find somebody telling you they know the answer to the problem, 
they're selling you snake oil. Mm -hmm. Don't believe them. There is no panacea here. It is a complex social problem. I want to say one other thing. We talk about schools failing children. You know, when you look at Detroit, which has a graduation rate in its public schools slightly over 26%, that is not a school problem. That is a societal problem. Uh, Philadelphia, I think, is 38%. Um, and we as a society need to grapple with the horror. What does that portend for Detroit's future if 74 73% of, the high, of kids are not graduating from high school? Now, I know they go to private school, et cetera, et cetera, but it's a huge issue. Can I, one last thing, Dan, real quick. Overall statistic. Out of every 100 children entering kindergarten, about 10% know how to read, 10% have a, an organic uh, brain issue. About 20% are on the cusp of reading. They understand sound symbol correspondence. They're there. They're the kids the teacher loves to get because later when they score well on the SAT, they say, I taught her how to read. <laughs> <All right. laughs> That leaves about 60 to 70 percent, I think that percentage is probably higher in Mississippi, of children who do not enter kindergarten, if I said the first grade, forgive me, do not enter kindergarten ready to learn how to read. They don't have those basic skills. And reading in a uh, complex post-industrial society is the entry to almost everything else. Dana Joya former head of the National Endowment for the Arts, speaking at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival. He moderated a panel discussion on creating the next generation of Americans who read. Panelists included Claiborne Barksdale, the CEO of the Barksdale Reading Institute in Oxford, Mississippi, as well as Patricia Cool. She's co-director of the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences and professor of speech and hearing sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. Also on the panel was former U.S. Secretary of Education Margaret Spellings. This hour, we heard another Aspen Ideas Festival panel discussion, this one on putting the American economy back on track. That discussion featured chief economist of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board, Austin Goolsby, Douglas Holtz-Aiken, the director of domestic and economic policy for the John McCain 2008 presidential campaign, and the economics editor of The Wall Street Journal, David Wessel, CNBC's Maria Bartiromo moderator. If you missed any part of this program, or if you'd just like to hear it again, you can download the podcast. Go to the iTunes podcast section and search for Ideas from Aspen. American Public Media's Ideas from Aspen is produced by Larissa Anderson with help from Julie Seipel and Emily Bina. Technical direction from Rob Byers, Kyle Sisko, Zach Rose, Sam Keenan, and Michael Osborne. Oversight from Peter Clowney. I'm Kai Rizdon. American Public Media. 